Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, 28 through 36, and 43 through 45. Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothes became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him anything about this saying. This is God's word. Amen. Good morning. Good to see so many of you this morning. Uh, My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. I wanted to say uh, publicly thank you to so many of you. This is the first time we've ever done this, doing two services, and I was really nervous. I woke up very, very nervous this morning. I don't know why. It's just what you do, I guess, uh, when you're the one that's staying up here and not the ones sitting out there. But, um, uh, But so thank you for coming, for paying attention to all the advertising we've been trying to do. I know many of you are staying around for the second. Jonathan and I are out back saying, who's left to even come to a second service? You know, what have we done? Because so many of you showed up here at 9. We thought this would be the low attendance. The next one would be uh, the bigger attendance, but it still remains to be seen, I guess. So, again, thank you to all of you who've made this morning possible, and just for rolling with it, we're grateful. We're going to be doing this in the fall. Uh, in the fall, we'll be doing this every week, uh, services at these times. So it's a great trial run for us. Uh, but, again, I'm just grateful uh, to be able to be a part of uh, all that's happening here this morning. We continue in a series uh, through the Gospel of Luke, and, and really this chapter 9 is where we are in our series, and so we thought it would be a great opportunity for us to take this scene that we read, Susan just read to us, and, and talk about uh, it, and also about the implications that it has for the resurrection that happens at the end of Luke's Gospel, which is what we celebrate this morning. So uh, let's just look here at Luke uh, chapter 9 together for a few minutes this morning. Lady Annabellum, uh, the country music group, has a song entitled Compass. And there is a line in the song, and it's really the theme of the song, you might say. It says this, it says, So let your heart, sweetheart, be your compass when you're lost, and you should follow it wherever it may go. Now, it's fairly typical pop psychology, isn't it? That the key to happiness and meaning in life is to be true to yourself. It sounds sweet, doesn't it? 
it's poison. It's deadly. To follow your heart is not the key to happiness. It's the surest way to destroy your life. Because according to the prophet Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. That's the truth. The heart wants what it wants. So said Woody Allen about his sexual relationship with his teenage stepdaughter. I mean, he was actually quoting, I didn't know this, but he was quoting Emily Dickinson, not Selena Gomez, by the way, Emily Dickinson, okay? <laughs> Who, in a letter to a friend, wrote, the heart wants what it, what it wants, or else it doesn't care. And it's a marvelous insight, which, by the way, Woody Allen completely missed by quoting her, but leaving off the last part. Dickinson says, the heart would have its way or it will take its toys and go home. It's a petulant child. And that's the problem with adopting the philosophy uh, that, that is true of most of our culture as a way of life. I'm reading, I'm reading a book uh, that I just happened upon called The Girl on a Train. It's about a woman recovering from a, a devastating divorce due to her husband's infidelity. And she's meditating on the, the pain that she experiences and how her life has just fallen apart. And she has this, this statement she makes that really is just marvelous, I think. She says, I, I've never understood how people can blithely disregard the damage they do by following their hearts. Who was it that said following your heart is a good thing? It's pure egotism, a selfishness to conquer all. And she's absolutely right. And really, I, I start here because it sets up the tension in Luke chapter 9. Luke 9.51, which I didn't even print for you, but if you have a Bible, you can, you can turn there. This verse in verse 51 in this chapter is a turning point in Luke's gospel. And it goes like this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He is intent on going to Jerusalem to die. And the disciples were told, verse 45, do not understand this. They just can't wrap their minds around what Jesus' agenda is and what he's come to do. And twice in Luke 9, he clearly, clearly spells out for them what awaits him in Jerusalem. But their response is to argue, in the midst of his talking about his suffering and death, to argue about which of them is the greatest. And then we read the statement that I've just not been able to get past either this week or last. It's really kind of sat on my heart for uh, many, many days now. And it's in verse 47 where we read that Jesus knowing the reasoning of their hearts. The heart wants what it wants. And it doesn't want a cross. That was their problem. That was why they had such a hard time understanding Jesus' mission. All the way up to the resurrection. There's a reasoning of the heart that is contrary to the way of Jesus. And the key to happiness and purpose in life then is not following your heart. That's the problem. That's what's got us into so much trouble and mess to begin with. And what Christianity, what Christians mean when they talk about sin is this very thing, being a slave to the sovereign, selfish desires of the heart. I'm about to sneeze. (coughs) Oh gosh, that's terrible. Excuse me. I felt that coming for a long time and I was just praying, Lord, please don't let that happen. (laughs) But I knew it was going to. So, Joe, if I, I'll, may, I'll try to warn you next time, because it may come again. Christianity talks about sin, and it says sin is this thing. It's being a slave to the sovereignty of our selfish desires. The prophet Isaiah writes, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. See, Isaiah isn't celebrating this. He isn't saying, isn't that great? We've, like, we've we turned to our own way. Everybody's finally pursuing their own you know, version of happiness in the good life. He's not celebrating, he's condemning it because this is the essence of sin. Sin is turning to your own way, following your own heart. So the key to happiness and purpose in life is not being free to follow your own heart. 
It is to have an experience like the experience that Peter and the other disciples had on this mountaintop in Luke 9, 28-36. We call this story the transfiguration because in it Jesus is transformed. Luke says, if you look there, verse 29, his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white, much like what happened to many of you this morning, right? We're all spiffed up. Jesus is, you know, I've seen some teenagers, I'm like, man, you look good. You usually don't look that good, right? What happened to you? And that's exactly, Jesus is is literally transformed. It would be better, however, to say that it's not so much that he's transformed here as much as it is that he's unveiled. That the disciples see his glory, we're told. But it was there all the time, but it was hidden. And now for the first time and for just a moment, they see him and we see him as he really is. The text in Philippians 2, which we read, says that though he was God, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant... He emptied himself, which just means that the glory, the majesty, the beauty of his divinity was muted by being clothed in the righteousness, of, in, the, in the ordinariness of his humanity. But here, in this moment, it shines forth. And that's why this is a great text for Easter. It's all too easy to admire Jesus and to approach spiritual things casually. But the resurrection won't let you do this. This passage won't let you do this because in the resurrection, Jesus was once again unveiled but to an even greater degree and we see him for who he truly, truly is and that's the key. That's the key, not only to being successful in life as a Christian but to, no matter whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, finding the joy and the happiness and the peace that all of us so long for. So here's what I want to do this morning. If you look at the outline that I gave to you in your worship folder, you're going to see that I want to talk about, I want to, I want to orbit around the resurrection and I want to ask these two questions. What does the resurrection um, force us to know? What does the resurrection force us to do? What must we know about the resurrection? And what must we do about it? Because we see both a doctrine and a duty that come from this text and from the fact of the resurrection which lays behind this text. Okay, So we're going to look at both of those two things, just those two, the doctrine and the duty of the resurrection. What we must know and what we must do. So first, what we must know about the resurrection from this text. That there's a doctrine that should shape our life. And it's a doctrine that reasons our heart towards obedience rather than our heart reasoning itself towards sin. And the doctrine is just this. I printed it for you there in your folder. It's, it's this. It's two parts. That there is no glory without a cross. But there's no cross without a resurrection. That really is the... If I had to sum up what we learn here about Jesus' life and ministry, and ultimately about the resurrection, it's just that, that there is no glory without a cross, but there's no cross without a resurrection. So let's take those each in turn, can we? The first, that there's no glory without a cross. See, this scene, this transfiguration scene, is all about glory. There's a description of Jesus who, his face is altered, and 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 his clothing is dazzling white. Verse 29, verse 30, Moses and Elijah appear in glory. Then we're told... Verse 32, the disciples see his glory. And then in verse 34, there's the cloud, which is the glory cloud, the the image from Exodus and the prophet Ezekiel that is the physical manifestation of God's glory and presence. So this scene is all about glory, about beauty and worth and significance because that's what the word glory means. Glory refers to what matters, what matters the most. But the argument in Luke 9 is over what glory really is. See, for the disciples, glory is the mountaintop, but in God's mind, it is something entirely different. Listen to John 
12, 33, Jesus begins to talk about his death towards the end of his life in John's gospel. And this is what he says. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem. The hour has now come for the Son of Man to be, you know how he finishes the sentence? Glorified. For Jesus, the cross is the moment of his glory. He was God, but did not consider godness something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, Paul says in Philippians 2. And listen, that's the glory. I mean, that's the glory. And in this text, this scene here is bracketed on both sides by his own declaration, verse 21, that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and killed, and on the third day be raised. And then again in verse 44, He says, let these words, he says to his men, sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. I love that, right? This is the mom at the end of the day who's having to say the same thing she said 15 times already that day. Let these words sink into your ears. I've said this already over and over again. Please pay attention and listen to what I'm saying. It's very, very important. For a number of different reasons. For one thing, if the glory is not the mountaintop but what awaits him in Jerusalem, then his cross, his coming down, his coming down means that our weakness and even our sin, this is what such good news this morning, that our weakness and even our sin is not an obstacle to knowing knowing him, it actually is the opportunity to know him. Right? That Jesus did not stay on the mountain and yell down, hey, climb up to me. He came down because self-improvement projects are not the way of salvation. The cross is. So his, climbing, his coming down, not our climbing up. Salvation is by grace. It's what he does for us, not what we do for him. And that, we've got to get that right this morning, right? If you're here and you're not a Christian, salvation is by grace. It's what he does. It's what we celebrate today. All that he's done in Christ Jesus. Coming down from heaven to earth. Coming down in the form of a servant. Coming down from the mountain into the valley to go to Jerusalem to take up a cross, to suffer and die in our place, to bear the wrath of God that was ours. His coming down, not our climbing up, because salvation is by grace. But here's the other thing. Another application of this is that his cross means our weakness and even our sin is not an obstacle, but an opportunity to knowing him. But it also means that in knowing him, we will find ourselves strapped to a cross too. See, Christianity is a religion that leads you into heartbreak and sadness and loss. It is not the solution to those things. It's not the solution to the parts of life that we'd rather escape. It's often the occasion for them. And here's the problem, why I started where I started, is your heart will never lead you towards heartbreak, sadness, and loss. It doesn't reason that way. But that's the only road you can travel if you're going to follow him. And so you've got to have the right idea about glory. You have to know what true beauty is, right? You have to know where real joy and purpose in life are found. And it's not in a life free of interruption and inconvenience. It's not in a life of Facebook-worthy experiences that make everybody else jealous. It's not on the mountaintop. Glory, glory is suffering love. The most beautiful thing, the most important thing, The most lasting thing, the thing that will be celebrated for eternity is humility and sacrificial love for others. Both in how he's loved us and also how empowered by his spirit we go to love other people. There's a scene 
in uh, The Great Divorce where there's a great parade in heaven. The whole book takes place in heaven. And, and there's this parade, and it's in honor of a woman who is described as unbearably beautiful. She's being regaled and celebrated and cheered by a great crowd of children and animals and the streets are lined and everybody is just this huge celebration. And the narrator who's, been given, who's being given a tour of heaven, he wonders who she is. And when he asks his guide, here's the answer that he gets. The guide says, it's someone you've never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith and she lived at Golders Green. And the narrator says, well, she seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. And here's the answer. I, she is one of the great ones. But you've heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are quite two different things. See, heaven will be the reversal of our ideas of glory. I mean, it's, what, it's what's previewed in this scene that will become permanent in heaven. Heaven will be the reversal of our ideas of glory. Consider this, in the Gospels we see that Jesus' resurrected body included the marks of his cross. Do you know what that means? It means that the ultimate healing of the wounds and the heartbreaks that you've experienced all throughout life because of your discipleship to him, the ultimate healing of those experiences will be the way that they are celebrated in heaven forever. And that's good. Right? I mean, that's good for me. That's good for me. That, that the scars that I bear from the crosses that I have taken in obedience to him, will go with me to be celebrated forever and ever and ever because suffering love is the most beautiful thing, the most important thing, the most lasting thing. There is no glory without a cross. But don't miss the second part, see? We get messed up if we only see the first and not the second. But the other part of this is that there's no cross without a resurrection. And that's why the glory we glimpse in this passage and Jesus unveiled on the Mount of Transfiguration is the ultimate assurance... Uh, of what our hearts need. And also it points us to the resurrection, which is the ultimate assurance, which we celebrate this morning that is so important. That this is who he really is as we see him here in these verses. Anne Lamott, who's a Christian author, has put it perfectly when she wrote, she said, we are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. And the only way to endure through a Good Friday world is to know that Easter is true, that he has conquered sin and death He is in heaven victorious and he is making all things new. And that's the glimpse we get, see. Philippians 2 said that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, and that therefore God exalted him. He raised him from the dead and gave him a name that is above every name. And the hope of the resurrection for us is the promise that Philippians 2, the words there, is how the world now works with Jesus at the helm. The Apostle Paul believed this. He explained his life like this. He said, my whole life is death at work in me so that life can be at work in you. That's what Jeff prayed, right? Death at work in me, life at work in you. I go without so that you can have. I don't get what I want so that you can have what you want. All of Christian discipleship, all of life as a Christian really has that shape. Death for me, life for you. Because if I insist on life for me, guess what happens? Death for you. That's the only way it works. And so... Death for me, life for you. And, and, and you, sit, you, you listen to Paul reason that out and you think, where did this man find the power and the strength that he needed to live this way? And it comes in just a few verses after that statement in 2 Corinthians 4 when he goes on to say that the reason that he can live this way, here are his words. Death at work in us, but life in you, because we know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with him. 
See, Jesus' cross led to a resurrection, and that means this. The crosses that you bear for his sake will never be without a resurrection for you too. And that's how you find the courage. That's the truth that you need to know in order to take up your cross and follow him. Whether you're just starting out or whether you've been at it for a long, long time. Do you remember the line? It's rather famous in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Aslan the Lion describes the results of his death. And it really is Lewis's description of Jesus's the, the, the fallout of Jesus' death and resurrection, where he says that death, as a result of the innocent dying in our place and being raised, that death is now working backwards. I love that. Do you know what it means? It means that the world was winding down, but now it's ramping up towards something beyond what we can even imagine. Listen to the prophet Isaiah. From Isaiah 25, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all from all of the earth. See, life is full of tears. And sadness and loss and fear, but all of that is on its way out, Isaiah says. The story that we celebrate this morning doesn't end with death but resurrection, and therefore, whatever story you're in the middle of, here's what you can be confident of. If you're in Christ, the end of it will not be death. It will always be resurrection. We know this intuitively, don't we? If you think of the most popular stories and movies in our culture, they are almost always gospel stories. There's always almost this shape, a dramatic downward movement into death, then a crisis moment of some kind, and then the dramatic upward movement toward resurrection. Stories, books, and movies that don't follow this pattern simply don't sell. If there's no resurrection, if somehow, I mean, the cardinal rule in our culture is you don't mess with the happily ever after, right? If you mess with the happily ever after, we don't buy it. And the reason is, the reason is our hearts were made for gospel stories. This is the way reality works. And we know it. So let me ask a question. What are you grieving? What's the downward moving into death that, that you're facing that's just you're scared to death of right now? I have some words of hope for you this morning on this Resurrection Sunday. You may not know it yet, but there will be a resurrection. For those in Christ Jesus, there is no cross that is not followed by a resurrection. And so even if you don't experience it in this life... You will in the next when you come into the kingdom of heaven, which is the Bible's version of the happily ever after. The resurrection does not make our full happiness immediate necessarily, but it does make it inevitable. That's such good news. The resurrection of Jesus does not make our full happiness immediate necessarily, but it does make it inevitable. It is the promise that everything that is sad is coming untrue, like waking up from a bad dream in a cold sweat and then remembering in that first exquisite moment you realize it was only a dream and your heart begins to slow and the thing that was so scary begins to fade. It isn't real. It isn't real. The nightmare comes untrue. What this text and what the resurrection would teach us is, is that's the very thing that's in front of us. Now that's the doctrine. That's what we must know about the resurrection. And if you don't know it, your heart will lead you into all kinds of trouble. But instead, you have to reason your heart towards obedience with what you know about the resurrection. And it's just that, that there is no glory without a cross. But there's no cross that doesn't also come with the promise of resurrection. Okay, but the second thing, and I need to wind down, is that we must do, we must do something about the resur- res- resurrection too. That this passage teaches that there's something that, that is to be done. It doesn't just give us a doctrine, but also a duty. It gives us... Something to do, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, what happens to the disciples here? The steps, you might say, they go through in this encounter if, you know, that, that you see are similar to what happens to a person 
in conversion, in the process of becoming a Christian, but also to every single one of us as we continue to journey onward and onward, over and over again, in the actual process of growing in our faith also. And so I want you to see just three things that we see happening to them here very quickly, and then we'll be done. And the first is, the first step is seeing him. What do we have to do? The first thing we have to do is seeing him. It always starts here. Pay attention to this verse, verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. I mean, this is a description of a spiritual awakening that is happening in these men. They've been with Jesus for a long time now, but in this moment, they are seeing him as he really is for the very first time. Do you know what that means? What's that mean? I mean, the Hebrew, it means something like this. The Hebrew word for glory means weight. That's what the word literally means. It means weight. And so to see his glory means that you gain some kind of spiritual understanding in a moment that causes him to begin to matter to you more than he ever has in a way that he never did before. And that's what's happening to Peter and the disciples on the mountain. They've been spiritually dull. You see how they're described? Heavy with sleep. But then they wake up. They come alive to spiritual things because they have an encounter with Jesus' glory. He begins to matter to them in a different way. And for this to happen in your life means that Jesus, because of what you see in him, becomes the weightiest thing in your life, the most beautiful thing, the most important thing to your heart. So you can know about God, but not really know Him. And you can see, but not really see. And you can come to church and participate, even on days like today, and be all spiffy and dressed up and be spiritually dull. And yet, the first step towards waking up spiritually is to see Him. To see Him. A few years ago, I, uh, I had an opportunity. My boys and I got invited to go to a shuttle launch. I've told this story before, but it's a good illustration over at the Cape, and I, I mean, we, VIP section, right? And who doesn't like to be a VIP, right? And so we were bussed out to the, the place out there where you can go that's maybe a mile or two away from where the actual launch takes place. Anyway, I, I grew up in Central Florida, and so I've seen a bunch of these things. I've watched them on TV in elementary school. They would march us out in the 80s to go outside and to watch the shuttle launch. I've read all the information about the science of it, you know, I've been, I, you know, I, I, so I, I am very, very familiar with all of these things. But to be there, two miles away, and for the lights to come on and be so bright that you literally have to turn your eyes and to feel the earthquake and for it to cause your insides to shake. It was unbelievable. We have on a video, and all you can hear in the video in the background was my son. I forget which one, but one of, they were littler, and, and you could just hear him go, That's all you could hear. And that's it. See, I knew, but I didn't know. I'd seen plenty of times, but I'd never seen. And to see his glory, as these disciples did, I mean, you begin to really know. You begin to really see. God begins to shake you on the inside. And that's what happens. Notice how Luke describes their response. Verse 34, the glory cloud comes down and surrounds them, and there we're told, afraid. It's the word Phobia. It's a crushing, overwhelming dread of spiders or mice or heights. But in this case, of the divine. But not only that, Luke goes on to describe the disciples, verse 43, as being astonished and marveling. And both of these words describe an intense emotional reaction. So seeing him means having a strong reaction 
to him, to be moved deeply by who he is. And so the response of the disciples here mirrors the, the response of those who witnessed his resurrection in the Gospels. And if we were to turn to those passages, we would see it was much the same. Fear and dread and amazement and awe and wonder. And these are the words that the Bible uses that are descriptive of the Christian experience. That our faith, listen, our faith is founded upon the truth of a God who serves, who washes feet, who sacrifices himself in love for his, his people. Our faith is founded upon the truth of a Savior who has conquered death and hell and who lives and is making all things new. And listen, if that is not true, if what we claim is false, then it's of absolutely no importance whatsoever. However, if it is true, if those things I just stated are true, they're of infinite importance. The only thing they can't be is moderately important. And so you, you don't see, you know, the, the, they don't come to the tomb on the day of the resurrection and kind of say, oh, well, isn't that interesting? Wow, you know, I wonder, hmm, I wonder, you know, and, and start to debate the finer points of whether or not they, they came and they just were over, they fell on their faces and they were overwhelmed with fear and wonder and astonishment and dread because that's the only way to respond to the sorts of things we claim to be true that we're celebrating this morning. You can't be casual with the resurrection. You can't add it on to an already crowded agenda. To see his glory means he becomes the most important thing in your life and you begin to be moved by him. And until you're moved, you haven't seen So the disciples see his glory. But the second thing that happens to them, they they see, and then a voice comes out of the cloud. And this is what the voice says. This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And that's the second thing the transfiguration and the resurrection gives us to do. We must see him first, but in seeing him, we must listen to him. And this means a number of things. It means, first, to acknowledge his unique authority and preeminence. Peter's response To this experience, we're told here is to build three tents, verse 33, one for Moses and one for Elijah and one for Jesus. But this is wrong. And Luke, I heard a couple of you chuckle when Susan read it. Luke points this out with the phrase, Peter starts talking not knowing what he said. Right? Luke says, Peter talked not knowing what he was talking about. And the commentators too are unanimous in accusing Peter in this act of failing to recognize Jesus' unique authority and preeminence. And, to, and, and by trying to make Jesus equal with Moses and Elijah. And so the voice, the voice is the corrective to Peter's mistake. This is my son. This is my chosen one. In other words, Jesus is not just another Moses. He's not just another prophet. When Moses brought the Ten Commandments down from Sinai, they were written in his handwriting. When Elijah spoke as a prophet and said, Thus says the Lord, he was quoting him. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis points out that it's particularly a modern impulse to put Jesus alongside of other religious leaders and teachers and not to acknowledge what is unique about him, his unique authority and preeminence. And so he wrote this. He said, a man who was merely a man and said and did the sorts of things that Jesus did would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great teacher. He has not left that open to us. 
See, I'll admit uh, to dark moments in my own spiritual journey where I begin to question things, which usually leads to questioning everything. Anybody else ever been there? And I start to wonder, you know, and this is, this is, this pastor shouldn't make these confessions, but if they don't, they're lying. You know, I have moments where I come and think, you know, is any of this real? I mean, what are we doing, really? And that helps me, because, see, it, may, it forces me, it forces me to make sense of who he himself claimed to be, that either Jesus was a liar and intentionally deceiving people, or he was insane, or he really was who he claimed to be. There's no in-between. When the disciples went to the tomb on the first Easter Sunday and the tomb was empty, his body was not there. That is a historical fact. So either it was a grand conspiracy or he, in fact, is not dead but alive and risen to conquer sin and death. The book of Acts records that over 500 people witnessed him after his resurrection. So which is more believable? Which makes most sense? Is it really plausible that a small group of disciples could create a lie that would be perpetuated for 2,000 years, or is it more likely true? But see, there's no middle ground, and that's what helps me. Either he is who he claimed to be, or he's dead and his body has long since returned to dust. And if that's the case, we should all walk away. But if he is the Son of God, crucified and buried and raised on the third day, in that case, there is no other option than to fall at his feet and to call him Lord. But there's no middle ground. And that really helps me in my own moments of darkness and doubt. You can dismiss him if you want, or you can worship him and build your life on him and give him everything. Those are the only two options. The one thing we can't be is lukewarm. You can't be half-hearted. He hasn't left that open to us. This is my son, my chosen one, the heavenly voice says. Listen to him. It's a call to a lifestyle of learning and repentance. And so if there's a reasoning of the heart that is contrary to the way of Jesus, then there's much that we must unlearn and relearn. And all throughout Luke 9, Jesus keeps talking about the cross. They're going to Jerusalem, but to a cross, not a throne, and the disciples won't listen. And so he says, let these words sink into your ears. And we imagine an exasperated tone, but they they still won't listen. And we're told in verse 45, they did not understand the saying. It was concealed from them so they might not perceive it. And this should... Humble us. It should humble us. Research shows that we're capable of speaking at only 200 to 250 words a minute, but we're capable of listening at three to 500 words a minute, which means that we were created with a greater capacity to listen than to speak. But Peter, Peter loved to talk. In the Gospels, Peter's always talking, and here he is talking again when he should be listening. He loved to talk because Peter loved to be in charge. He was willful, and we are too. And so the voice from heaven comes to us this morning to say, shut your mouth, pay attention. Listening means being ready to repent, because we still have a lot to learn. There's a lot we're wrong about, and when it's brought to our attention, we change. Not just a conversion at the very beginning, but over and over again from beginning to end. To listen means that you never stop learning, you never stop repenting. See, if Jesus is just a moral teacher, just another prophet, just one religious leader among many, you can choose from on the modern spirituality buffet, then you can take this advice, leave this, doesn't really matter, use the parts you like, just ignore the parts that you don't like. But if he is the Son of God, if the tomb is indeed empty, then the only option we have is to listen, to obey, to give your life to him and make him your everything. And that's the last step. You have to see him and listen to him and then follow him. Stop following your heart and follow him. Do you remember at the beginning I said there was a way that the heart reasons that's contrary to the way of Jesus? Seeing him and listening to him 
lifestyle of worship and repentance leads to a life that takes a very different shape. And poor Peter. And he makes another mistake here. He wants to stay on the mountain. That's the reason for the three tents. Master, he says, verse 33, it's good that we're here. Let us make tents and stay here. Peter thinks life with Jesus should be a perpetual mountaintop experience. But Jesus is intent to walk down the mountain and go to Jerusalem to die. And that's the choice that's before Peter too. To follow him is to go with him. To leave the mountain in the sunshine and to go down into the valley of the shadow of death. And so we're back where we started, aren't we? The doing flows from the doctrine. And the lesson of Easter, again, one last time, is just this. There is no glory without a cross. But there is no cross without also the promise of resurrection. Because he is risen. Amen? And so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have vindicated your Son, so that we might know Him to be who He truly is, but also you have uh, vindicated and and rescued us from the doubts that would plague us, from the unbelief that it's so pervasive in our hearts, that we this morning could declare with the church through the ages, He is risen, He is risen indeed, and, and to feel the weight of those words in our life, and to know that they call us to something. And yet, Father, it's so easy to be full of fear when we consider the implications and the demands of discipleship. And so we pray that you would fill our heart with hope, that though there is no glory without a cross and you call us to take up ours and follow you, there is also no cross that does not lead to resurrection for those who are in you. And so fill our our hearts with hope in that truth, that we might see you this morning and listen to you and give our lives to you and follow after you that you might be glorified in us as your people, we pray in Jesus' name. He sends us out now. He goes before us into our city and to the world uh, in suffering love. And he calls us to take up our cross and follow after him. But the courage to do that comes from knowing that there is no cross. There's no glory without a cross. But there's no cross without the promise of resurrection. And that is the promise contained in this benediction. Uh, That as you go, taking your cross to follow him, uh, that he will meet you at the place of death to raise you to life. Uh, Not only moment by moment, but also at the end of your life, he will be there. And the promise is uh, eternal life for those who believe in him. So put your faith in him and follow him now as he leads you wherever he would send you. Receive the words of this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Happy Easter.